everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. As you probably know at this point, I am deep into an analysis of Stephen King's 1986 masterpiece, It. This week I'll dive into the themes present in the story, give my final thoughts on the characters, and wrap it up with the Stephen Kingisms on display. So if you haven't done so already, uh, feel free and head on back to parts one and two of the very in-depth review. This is the longest I've spent on one particular work at this point. I've done uh, two parts before, but but never a threefer. So this is this is new to me, and I hope that everyone has enjoyed what I've had to say so far. So part one, uh, if you haven't checked it out, part one was uh, an introduction and kind of putting it in the context, and then I began my running commentary slash analysis on the book, and then part two, I, I, I continued and then wrapped up my running analysis. So I'm going to put my final thoughts this week, and next week, if you are fans of the movie, stick around as I give my analysis and review of the 1990 ABC uh, TV miniseries. So what I'm going to do now, I'm going to head into the themes, uh, like I said, beginning with adults and children. This novel is a thousand-plus page exploration on the relationship between children and adults, and at times when the two worlds come into conflict with one another. He examines all aspects of what it means to be a child living in an adult world, and ultimately the necessity of tapping into that childhood magic as an adult to combat the evil that grown-ups are just not equipped to handle. Earlier in the review, a couple episodes ago, which felt like 28 years ago, um, I referenced the importance of Georgie's entering the basement. What King does here is present a universal truth. While an adult wrote this for adults, posited within these pages is the undeniable fact that the fears of children are more potent than the fears of adulthood. As I've stated in previous podcasts, when I first read this book, I couldn't believe that an adult captured the experience of childhood the way that he did with this book. As adults, we rationalize things. We're able to use our own form of magic to capture and cage our fears, logic, reason, routines, systems. Kids aren't equipped with these spells. Instead, they're equipped with raw imagination, which is why Pennywise is the ultimate boogeyman. He uses that imagination against the kids. It's a perversion, and it's a nightmarish twisting of a child's ability to dream, suggests spiritual molestation a fate worse than death. It doesn't just kill you. For the survivors, it imprints itself on you. The losers might have forgotten, but deep down, not really. Throughout the text, in between killer clowns, vampires, mummies, bullies, King takes great pains to speak on the relationship between adults and children, and the relationship between adulthood and childhood. It's no coincidence that losers can't bear children of their own. The first presents itself during our meeting with Stan during the third chapter in the first section which we experience the lasting effects of the ordeal with Pennywise through Stan's wife, Patty's perspective. And while Patty is never fully dragged into the hellish world of Derry with its spider demons and dead turtle gods, she brushes up against it. And though Stan never fully understanding realizes that it's his fault that they can't conceive. Why is never fully explained, but it has something to do with the cosmic fortune granted to them, and because they were unable to destroy it. It's as if they can't have children because they're still children themselves, living as adults the dreams they concocted for themselves as children, boys and girls dreaming they're men and women. How does this occur? At the conclusion of the novel, when the spider is on the ropes, it starts begging for its life and tells Richie and Bill that it'll grant them fortune and long life. This suggests that the success the losers have had in adulthood is because of it 
rather than the other or the turtle. While it never comes out and states this, it makes sense that it's buttered them up, it got them fat before it called them home. In this case, it represents the dangers of adulthood that can threaten the child. With Ben, King writes on page 78, I'm going because all I've ever gotten and all I ever have now is somewhat due to what we did then, and you pay for what you get in this world. Maybe that's why God made us kids first and built us close to the ground, because he knows that you've got to fall down a lot and bleed a lot for you to learn that one simple lesson. You pay for what you get, you own what you pay for, and sooner or later, whatever you own comes back home to you. Now, I want to talk about magic. Here, and before I get any further, just let's take a moment here to examine the dedication. Usually, an author will dedicate uh, a book to someone, but here, not only does King dedicate it to his family, but he puts up um, right up front the magic that will play such an integral role in the book. He writes, This book is gratefully dedicated to my children. My mother and my wife taught me how to be a man. My children taught me how to be free. Naomi Rachel King at 14, Joseph Hillstrom King at 12, Owen Philip King at 7. Kids, fiction is the truth inside the lie, and the truth of this fiction is simple enough. The magic exists. The magic that he speaks of is the thrust of the novel. Now, King began his examination on childhood with the body, but he builds upon these themes here. With this novel, he makes his ultimate statement on what it meant to be a child. And through the statement, the everyday moments of childhood is mythologized in this book. The power generated by the losers is given supernatural weight. Yet really, it's just what every child feels when they're with their friends. The clubhouse they build turns into a teleporter to another time. A slingshot becomes the most deadly weapon in the world. When signing Eddie's cast, it becomes a cosmic contract, the haunted house, and ultimately losing touch with your friends. These are all the beats that you remember from childhood. And they're here with a magical charge. But where does the magic come from? I'd say that it's built into the majority of children out there, and the case of our heroes was magnified by the turtle, who recognized that this quartet had united to stop the threat. The magic magnified a spell cast in, as King writes, a ritual that is perhaps as old as mankind itself, an unknowing tap driven into the tree of all power one that grows on the borderline between the land of all we know and all that we suspect. The magic must be extra potent if they're going to be able to combat it, because they learn soon enough that the clown isn't the only thing they have to deal with. Just ask Eddie or Beverly. Their parents represent the truth of childhood, that in some ways we invent the magic to shield us from the raw and ugly truths that we see in adults. Worse here for our characters because it's their parents. Even before we get the flashback scenes, King demonstrates the danger of the adults within Derry, from the spectators who watched and refused to help Adrian Mellon from being killed, to the realization that during the first interlude that many people not only know that there's something wrong with Derry, but also that it has a cycle of evil. They know, but they don't do anything about it. Yes, the adults in town are a danger for the children, even if they don't lurk under the sewer or beneath the bridge. If this town is Pennywise's circus, as author Joe Hill refers to it in Nosferatu, then the adults are funhouse mirrors for the children, frightening versions of what may be, what time might have in store for them. The magic itself for childhood is best visualized with Bill's bike Silver, 
which serves as the symbol of childhood and therefore our conduit to its magic. Think of your own youth. Did you own a bike? Do you remember the feeling of freedom it gave you? Did you ever lose yourself in that freedom, envisioning yourself not as a cyclist but a pilot? The tires not wheels but wings? Did you ever ride out of reality and into the world of imagination? I know I did, and I'm sure you did too. And that's what makes Silver so important to this story. Silver is not just Bill's bike, it's all of our bikes. Silver is, to use a favorite term of King, the apothesis of all bikes, and is charged with a very real power. Silver is a little bit Kit from Knight Rider, a little bit Bumblebee from Transformers, a little bit Millennium Falcon from Star Wars. In many ways, Silver is the anti-Christine. Both vehicles are the objects of the rider's affection, and both read the minds of their owners. But Silver, of course, is a, good, a source of good, a physical manifestation of all the qualities that make Bill the din of his quartet. The universe, in the form of a cosmic turtle, granted him this bike in the hopes that it would help in the defeat of an interdimensional spider god. And if you were to ask me why I love this book, the insanity of that sentence that I just read is all that I need to answer. As King writes, as always when he was on silver, he became someone else. With this, it's clear that Pennywise isn't the only one that can shapeshift in this story. Silver saves Ben not once but twice, first as an adult, I'm sorry, first once as a child and later as an adult in an incredibly moving scene in which the last of the childhood magic is sacrificed to resurrect Audra as the child fully gives way to the adult. It's a scene that doesn't just fall flat in the movie, by the way, but crashes on the hill and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. I'll talk about that next week, but man, it just does not work on the screen. When we're first introduced to Silver as Bill returns to Derry and the thought of the bike um, just brings tears to his eyes. For the first time in the book, the memory of the past brings about not something evil or terrifying, but something beautiful. A reminder that the magic was pure and strong enough to survive within the tangles of the horrors that childhood sometimes brings about. Richie, um, can't wait to talk about Richie in more depth in a little bit, but Richie reflects on the, powerhood, uh, on the power of childhood on pages uh, 700 to 701. Richie had felt a mad, exhilarating kind of energy growing in the room. He had done cocaine nine or ten times over the last couple of years at parties mostly. Coke wasn't something you wanted just lying around your house if you were a big-time disc jockey. And the feel was something like that, but not exactly. This feeling was purer more of a mainline high. He thought that he recognized the feeling from his childhood when he felt it every day and had come to take it merely as a matter of course. He supposed that if he had ever thought about that deep-running aquifer of energy as a kid, he would have simply dismissed it as a fact of life, something that would always be there, like the color of his eyes or his disgusting hammer toes. Well, that hadn't turned out to be true. The energy you drew on so extravagantly when you were a kid, the energy you thought would never exhaust itself, that slipped away somewhere between 18 and 24 to be replaced by something much duller, something as bogus as a coke high. Purpose, maybe, or goals, or whatever rah-rah junior chamber of commerce word you wanted to use. It was no big deal. didn't go all at once with a bang. And maybe Richie thought, that's the scary part. How you don't stop being a kid all at once with a big explosive bang, like one of the clown's trick balloons with the Burma Shave slogans on their sides. The kid in you just leaked out like the air of a tire, and one day you looked in the mirror and there was a grown-up looking back at you. You could go on wearing blue jeans, you could keep going to Springsteen and see your concerts, you could dye your hair, 
but that was a grown-up's face in the mirror just the same. It all happened while you were asleep, maybe, like a visit from the Tooth Fairy. No, he thinks, not the Tooth Fairy. The Age Fairy. Through the voice of It, King presents to us why the losers were so powerful um, on page 974. There was a power in them, diminished but still there. They had come here as children and somehow against all odds, against all that was supposed to be, all that could be, they had heard it badly, had almost killed it, had forced it to flee deep into the earth where it huddled, hurt and hating and trembling in a spreading pool of its own strange blood. You know, it's... So the power, it's all about that power. And, and, and what part do the adults play in this magical, magical world of childhood? A complex part. That's what it... King explores every possible facet on the relationship between childhood and adulthood, from the horrible to the complex. For instance, look at the relationship between Ben and his mother, one of great love and sacrifice, but with the reference of Ben's friends early on, before he meets the losers, uh, despite his love of her, the continual reference of the non-existent friends causes Ben to mistrust her, to childhood touchstone, to doubt or mistrust the adults on some level, in some ways, because they're simply not children themselves, and their world is strange and alien. Is it any wonder why the central villain is an alien creature? Its world of the macroverse is a metaphor for adulthood, which hopes to swallow and consume childhood. King reveals that dairy is dangerous for the children not necessarily because of the clown, but because of the adults who inhabit it. Not necessarily because they're evil, but because they're apathetic and complicit in the evils that occur within the city. I believe that the average dairy adult is personified by Mr. Keene, the town pharmacist, who, despite giving Bill Eddie's aspirator and helping to fill in adult Mike on the history of the town, is always described by King and thought of by the characters as having negative qualities. He's like dairy itself in that regard. On the surface, he's pleasant enough, but if you look closer, there's something sour within. With Keene, King states his position on adults. This is explicitly addressed by Eddie in Mr. Keene's office when he feels Keene is getting pleasure from Eddie's discomfort and thinks, how could you fight a grown-up who said it wasn't going to hurt you when you knew what, that it was? How could you fight a grown-up who asked you funny questions and said ominous things like, this has gone on long enough? And almost idly, in a kind of side thought, Eddie discovered one of childhood's great truth. Grown-ups are the real monsters. Yet life is messy, and King goes out of his way to demonstrate the complexities of this universal truth. A lesser writer would draw a line down the center of his or her book and have good kids on one side and bad adults on the other. I've made the argument that a magicless adulthood looms over the children in the form of grief-stricken Denbros, the abuse of Alvin March, the sour Mr. Keene, the domineering Mrs. Casbrack, and yet King makes a point to show that despite the failings of the adults, there are also there is also the officer Nels, the Hanlins, and the Tozers who love and accept their lunatic child, who in King's words could read them like books, well-worn and well-loved books. While we have squirm-inducing scenes between Bev and her father and heartbreaking scenes between Bill and his parents, just Look at the scene between 326 and 330. That's just a simple reveal of Richie and his parents. It doesn't really need to be there. King could have just as easily had Richie go to the movies without an extended take of him haggling with his father over mowing the lawn. 
but does wonders in contrasting the warmth of the adults in his life with the coldness in most of the dairy citizens. It's necessary. You can't have all of the adults bad all the time. It's not reality, and it would take the reader out of the text. And he's smart enough to give us the adult perspective as well, as evidenced by Richie's mother who thinks, I don't understand either of them, where they go, what they do, what they want, or what will become of them. Sometimes, oh, sometimes their eyes are wild, and sometimes I'm afraid for them, and sometimes I'm afraid of them. The ultimate aspect of adulthood is that it represents the death of childhood. Like I said, the entire novel is a metaphor for the death of childhood with the creature retreating into the unknown. Having to face it means letting go a part of yourself, and as we see with the characters, beating it allows the characters to retain some of that childhood magic, revealing the animal of adulthood doesn't always have to chew up the children within. Eddie senses the impending death of his current state of being on page 767. We're passing over, King writes, passing over into something new. We're on the border, but what's on the other side? Where are we going? Where? King revisits this when the losers defeat the spider in 1958. Bill looks out over the barrens, and on page 1066, he writes, I never want to play down there again, he thinks suddenly, and is amazed to find that this thought is not terrible or distressing, but tremendously liberating. And most poignantly, and most heartbreaking, when they finally defeat it, they forget each other. It's an incredibly wise move on King, who is stating that childhood is finally and eternally moving into the past. And with this touch, King ropes all of us into the story. If the loser's forgotten as an adult, then it stands to reason that all of us have forgotten that in some way, in the magic of our childhoods, we combated something that we didn't understand and came out stronger for it. If the losers don't remember each other, then part of us were the losers as well. Right, that universally we were the children fighting this adulthood. And the novel shows that we can still make it through with a little bit of that magic intact. And aside from the, the ultimate statement on childhood and childhood magic, this is also Stephen King's final essay on monsters, his ultimate essay on monsters. You know... It's the final rumination of this concept. The monster, the proper name, of course embodied here by Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Pulling from his personal life and his childhood, he examines the power of the fear produced by the monster, inspired by his real-life relationships with the classic Universal characters, I was a teenage werewolf, and others. With Pennywise, King manages to pay tribute to the villains that both terrified and inspired him as a child. Just look back at the similarities between the opening line of the novel, which opens the novel in a flashback to October of 1957. He writes, The terror, which would not end for another 28 years if it ever did end, began so far as I know or could tell, with a boat made from a sheet of newspaper floating down a gutter swollen with rain. And the opening line to his reflections on the horror genre Dance Macabre begins, as you guessed it, October 1957, with the following line, for me, the terror, the real terror, as opposed to whatever demons and boogies which might have been living in my own mind, began on an afternoon in October of 1957. 
Two genres, one fiction, one nonfiction, are linked together with two nearly identical sentences, which serves as a bridge across which King will carry his examinations of what the horror genre means to him. He did it first on one side of the bridge with 1981's nonfiction account, Dance Macabre, and he revisits it on the other end of the bridge within the realm of fiction within this novel. And lurking below that bridge is a gleeful, cannibalistic, fairy tale troll dressed up in a clown suit that has existed within his mind since childhood. In order to understand fully what King is examining within the pages of It on one side of the bridge, we need to look closely at what he wrote on the other side of the bridge with Dance Macabre. In the 400-page essay on horror, he posits that there are two levels when it comes to the genre. The first level is the gross-out, gruesome, gory level, but argues that the second level is the more potent, and writes, The work of horror really is a dance, a moving, rhythmic search. And what it's looking for is the place where you, the viewer or the reader, live at your most primitive level. The work of horror is not interested in the civilian or the civilized furniture of our lives. Such a work dances through these rooms, which we have fitted out one piece at a time, each piece expressing, we hope, our socially acceptable and pleasantly enlightened character. It is in search of another place, a room which may sometimes resemble the secret den of a Victorian gentleman, sometimes the torture chamber of the Spanish Inquisition, but perhaps more frequently and most successfully, the simple and brutally plain hole of a Stone Age cave dweller. He goes on to write, The uneasy dreams of the mass subconscious may change from decade to decade. The pipeline into that well of dreams remains constant and vital. This is the real dance macabre, I suspect, those remarkable moments when the creator of a horror story is able to unite the conscious and subconscious mind with one potent idea. A pipeline, King writes, or like I posited, a bridge. Another way to look at the link between his two essays, one fiction, one nonfiction, is this. As King states, our relationship with horror is a dance. It's a dance macabre. And what is the title of our central villain at the heart of it? Pennywise, the dancing clown. Pennywise is the embodiment, the pipeline referenced above. He, rather it, is the dance personified. King writes, the good horror tale will dance its way to the center of your life and find that secret door to the room you believe that no one but you knew of, as both Albert Camus and Billy Joel have pointed out. The stranger makes us nervous, but we love to try on his face in secret. And with Pennywise, the stranger adopts every face that has been popularized in the horror genre. In doing so, King creates both a tribute to the great entries to the horror genre, while simultaneously creating its greatest villain. It's one thing to write about the, the dance objectively in the pages of a nonfiction book. It's another thing to take the concepts laid out in that book and apply them into a fictional narrative. For King, this novel is deeply personal. Of course it is. It's his final statement on the genre that built his career. As stated before, it's the culmination of deeply personal thoughts, themes, and feelings on childhood, the magic of childhood, and a child's relationship with the monster. The fiction within this text is further entwined by his personal life when you look closer at the openings of the two texts, both linked by the terror of 1957. The real-life terror for Kim King came about during a screening of The Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, a piece of fiction that was interrupted by the real-life event of the Russians spending, sending Sputnik into space. 
What better way to comment on these two intermingling of fact and fiction than having the dance personified be an alien from beyond the stars? It isn't a supernatural demon, which is important to note. It's an alien inspired by the It Came From The Skies styled movies that dominated the movie theaters of the 1950s. And when it fell to Earth, it fell from the very real movie theater in Stratford, Connecticut in 1957 into the pages of this book. And as a side note, you know, talking about this in terms of aliens, um, yes, it, it, it's presented to the kids at first as in an alien from beyond the stars. But as I mentioned in last week's review, it's really described as coming from the spaces between the stars, which is an HP Lovecraftism. Lovecraft, of course, was an inspiration to King, and what better way to write the ultimate horror novel than having its villains stand alongside Cthulhu and other creatures from Lovecraft works. So now um, I want to talk about the characters. We are now at, okay, 24 minutes. Uh, and uh, there's probably, you know, I... I the, the first review that I did, um, part one, was pretty lengthy. And last week I thought was, was a good time. I, I don't want to spend too, too long on this. Um, but I definitely, I definitely want to spend some time with the characters because we spent 28 years, in a sense, with them. Now look, I, if, if I'm going to start with the characters, who do you think I'm going to start with? I'm going to start with Pennywise the Dancing Clown, a.k.a. Robert Gray, a.k.a. Bob Gray, a.k.a. The Spider, The Deadlights, Rodan, The Mummy, Teenage Werewolf, The Eyeball, The Shark from Jaws, and many more. I've already discussed Pennywise, but this is a character that seriously needs his own section. Hell, I could do an entire episode dedicated to him. Since I started this podcast, I've begun doing random searches of Stephen King-related topics on Google. And in all the searches, it doesn't matter what the search is. Certain images just pop onto the screen. Sometimes it's Jack Nicholson. But most of the time, it's the image of Tim Curry caked in whiteface. It's Pennywise the Dancing Clown. There are many top 10 lists out there, the top 10 Stephen King books, top 10 Stephen King's scariest stories, Stephen King's top 10 monsters. Depending on the preference of the list compiler, the number one spot on these lists will include one of two books or one of two villains. Those two books are The Stand and It. And the villains are Pennywise and Randall Flagg. But I would argue from a pop culture perspective, the walking dude has to take the silver medal to the Eater of Worlds because something about Tim Curry's performance in the movie planted little spider eggs in the minds of all of the viewers that hatched and caught all of our fears in their webs. In a few years, and it's an exciting time to be a Stephen King fan, because in a few years, we're going to see these two heavyweights go battle it out in the pop culture ring on the big screen. Whose performance will enter the halls of greatness? Will it be Matthew McConaughey as Randall Flagg, or will it be an, a yet unnamed actor? But make no mistake, with a two-picture commitment and a two-picture seen as a revitalization of New Line Cinema with television's most talked-about director at its helm, they're going to get someone big for Pennywise, and I can't wait. And they're going to have to. After all, in the wake of the book's publication and the release of the 1990 miniseries, the image of the scary clown has been beaten into, been there, done that. The number three movie of all time holds its distinction because of Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker. And most recently, on Ryan Murphy's American Horror Story Freak Show, viewers were introduced to Twisty the Clown, who for a new generation has become the king of scary clowns, though I think that that's a fad that will pass. The reason I believe Pennywise endures while other clowns have come off as derivative can be found in his introduction. 
King writes of Georgie, he saw himself getting up and backing away, and that was when a voice, a perfectly reasonable and rather pleasant voice, spoke to him from inside the storm drain. I believe this sentence embodies what makes Pennywise the king of scary clowns. First, it's not a growl. He's not menacing. His voice is reasonable and described as pleasant. And the prepositional phrase that follows places the, that perfectly reasonable and pleasant voice inside a storm drain. Unlike Twisty the Clown, who's filthy, wears someone else's face as a mask, and just looks evil, Pennywise is misleadingly alluring. The power of this clown is that he's a charming, regular clown in all of the places a clown shouldn't be. Picture this. Rather than a smiling, pleasant Pennywise inside a storm drain, picture Twisty the Clown. First, the latter image lacks punch because Twisty looks like he belongs in a storm drain. The punch comes from the inherent wrongness of a clean, friendly clown inside of a drain. King hits the reader with a contradictory duality, which forces the reader to put these jigsaw pieces together, pieces that will never fit together. From an active participant standpoint, King makes us do more work, and in doing so draws us in further. Because we're desperately trying to make sense of this, we are like Georgie, lured in and reaching for our object, which is understanding, just as he reaches for his boat. Basically, Pennywise works because he's a clown in all of the places a clown shouldn't be in a drain in the sewers beneath the bridge. He's not dingy. He's not snarling. He's, he's a laughing clown. He could just as easily be at the circus laughing at a fellow clown or telling a joke to children. But it's because the reader either doesn't know what he's laughing at or knows that he's laughing at death causes the deep-seated terror. All the other clowns, they're just scary and coast by in their image and collective fear that we have of clowns. Pennywise has the distinction of being more than just a clown. This is summarized best by the thoughts of Stan, who can't quite formulate his feelings, but thankfully for us, Stephen King can. On page 411, he writes, He wanted to tell them those dead boys who had lurched and shambled their way down the spiral staircase had done something worse than frighten him. They had offended him. Offended, yes. That was the only word he could think of, and if he used it, they would laugh. They liked him, he knew that, and they had accepted him as one of them, but they would still laugh. All the same, there were things that were not supposed to be. They offended any sane person's sense of order. They offended the central idea that God had given the earth a final tilt on its axis so that twilight would last about 12 minutes at the equator and linger for an hour or more up where the Eskimos built their ice cube houses. That he had done that and he had then said, in effect, okay, if you can figure out the tilt, you can figure out any damn thing you choose. Because even light has weight, and when the note of a train whistle suddenly drops, it's the Doppler effect. And when an airplane breaks the sound barrier, that bang isn't the applause of the angels or the flatulence of demons, but only air collapsing back into place. I gave you the tilt, and I sat back about halfway up on the auditorium to watch the show. I've got nothing else to say except that two and two makes four, the lights in the sky are stars. And if there's blood, grown-ups can see it, as well as kids, and dead boys stay dead. You can live with fear, I think, Stan would have said if he could. Maybe not forever, but for a long, long time. It's offense maybe you can't live with. 
because it opens up a crack inside your thinking. And if you look down into it, you see that there are live things down there. And they have little yellow eyes that don't blink, and there's a stink down in that dark. And after a while, you think maybe there's a whole other universe down there, a universe where a square moon rises in the sky and the stars laugh in cold voices. And some of the triangles have four sides, and some have five, and some of them have five rays to the fifth power of sides. In this universe, there might grow roses which sing. Everything leads to everything, he would have told them if he could. Go to your church and listen to your stories about Jesus walking on the water, but if I saw a guy doing that, I'd scream and scream and scream, because it wouldn't look like a miracle to me. It would look like an offense. King addresses the danger and the power of the creature, because while it kills children, it doesn't just kill them to kill them. On page 855, King writes, This raises some interesting questions. What does it really eat, for instance? I know that some of the children have been partially eaten. They show bite marks at least, but perhaps it is we who drive it to do that. Certainly we have all been taught since earliest childhood that what the monster does when it catches you in the deep wood is eat you. That is perhaps the worst thing that we can conceive. But it's really faith that monsters live on, isn't it? I am led irresistibly to this conclusion. Food may be life, but the source of power is faith, not food. And who is more capable of a total act of faith than a child? And he goes on to write, but there's a problem. Kids grow up. In the church, power is perpetuated and renewed by periodic ritualistic acts. In dairy, power seems to be perpetuated and renewed by periodic ritualistic acts, too. Can it be that it protects itself by the simple fact that, as the children grow into adults, they become either incapable of faith or crippled by a sort of spiritual and imaginative arthritis? Yes, I think that that's the secret here. So this is a monster that preys on hope and faith and imagination and belief. What makes this creature stand out more so than Barlow or Straker or Cujo or Christine, Jack Torrance, more so than the Overlook Hotel or the Micmac Burial Ground, Reverend Lowe, is that Pennywise thrives on dreams. He attacks the souls of our characters, and I think that that is one of the reasons why this character is what it is. Next up, we have Bill. When Bill loses George, he's also losing a piece of himself. While around George, his stutter is light, sometimes non-existent. In terms of magic, Bill is at that age where he loses the magic anyway, even without threat from a universal cosmic spider clown made up of deadlights. George, on the other hand, a few years younger, is fully immersed in it. When Pennywise takes Georgie, he takes a piece of Bill's soul, the living vessel for the magic of his childhood. It's no surprise that in order to combat the stutter, he repeats the phrase, he still insists he sees the ghosts. The ghost in this case is Georgie. By forcing himself to conjure his ghost, he conjures his magic as well, and in doing so is able to beat back his stutter as Georgie had done for him while he was alive. Adult Bill, of course, is a writer. As we know, um, a popular Stephen King-isms is for our character to be a novelist, but as Patricia Uris will say to her mother, he's not a real writer. 
This is King's sly wink at the critics out there who dismiss his and his colleagues' works simply for the genre in which they're included. I'll get to Stephen Kingisms later, but um, in which I'll list the, the, the writer as protagonist because Bill certainly fits that description. More so with Bill than any other writer character, King explores the magic of the writing process, for instance, on the... Uh, which you can find on the bottom of page 120 to 121. So this is after Bill had stood up to his college professor, and he writes, Bill leaves, but returns the next week, determined to stick with it. In the time between, he has written a story called The Dark, a tale about a small boy who discovers a monster in the cellar of his house. The little boy faces it, battles it, finally kills it. He feels a holy, a kind of holy exaltation as he goes about the business of writing this story. He even feels that he isn't so much telling the story as he is allowing the story to flow through him. At one point, he puts his pen down and takes his hot and aching hand out into the 10-degree December cold where it nearly smokes from the temperature change. He walks around, green cut-off boots squeaking in the snow like tiny shutter hinges which need oil, and his head seems to bulge with the story. It's a little scary, the way it needs to get out. He feels that if it cannot escape by the way of racing hand, that will pop his eyes out in its urgency to escape and be concrete. So Bill is the leader of the group, and uh, that's explicitly stated uh, through Richie. Um, on page 347, we really get a sense of, of what that means. Besides, it didn't matter. Bill was here, and Bill would take care. Bill would not let things get out of control. He was the tallest of them, and surely the most handsome. Richie only had to look sideways at Bev's eyes fixed on Bill, and then farther to Ben's eyes fixed knowingly and unhappily on Bev's face to know that. Bill was also the strongest of them, and not just physically. There was a good deal more to it than that, but since Richie did not know either the word charisma or the full meaning of the word magnetism, he only felt that Bill's strength ran deep and might manifest itself in many ways, some of them probably unexpected. And Richie suspected if Beverly fell for him or got a crush on him or whatever they called it, Ben would not be jealous, like he would, Richie thought, if she got a crush on me. He would accept it as nothing but natural. And there was something else. Bill was good. It was stupid to think such a thing. He did not, in fact, think, precisely think it. He felt it. But there it was. Goodness and strength seemed to radiate from Bill. He was like a knight in an old movie. A movie that was corny but still had the power to make you cry and cheer and clap at the end. Strong and good. And five years later, after his memories of what had happened in Derry both during and before the summer had begun to fade rapidly, it occurred to Richie Tozier in his mid-teens that John Kennedy reminded him of Stuttering Bill. You know, just look at the, the apocalyptic rock fight when Bill approaches Victor Chris like the Terminator, systematically throwing rocks while refusing to duck or show pain when Victor's rocks bounce off of him. Okay, um... I'm going to get into this now. I'm going to talk about Bev. To say that Bev is a tricky character is an understatement. Of all the characters in the book, she's hands down the most complex. And in the hands of a lesser writer, her story of losing her virginity notwithstanding, this character would have gone off the rails into exploitation or caricature. Long gone is the distant memory of one-dimensional love interest female characters like Susan from Salem's Lot. Now, while Bev isn't the first strong female character that King has written, as Carrie White, Wendy Torrance, Charlie McGee, you know, have come before her, she's the one that needed the most finesse of his writing skills. 
As a child, one of Bev's defining traits, aside, of course, from being the girl next door, is her warped relationship with her father, Alvin. Under her father's twisted care, she is subjected to a distorted, possessive interpretation of love. And naturally, this is the cause for her future relationships with the men in her life as personified with the character of Tom. By this point in fiction, it's a cliché, right? You know, the lack of the father figure leads to a life of abuse at the hands of bad men. But with Bev, it's a little bit different. It isn't that there's a lack of a father figure in her life. Instead, there's too much of her father in her life. You know, and unlike other variations, which sees the girl subjected to molestation at the hands of a father figure, we don't see sexual abuse. It's hinted at, but it's a mix between physical and deep emotional. However, although the abuse never steps too heavily into physical territory, it's there, um, but it's not awful until he's really possessed by, by it. I can't, I can't say that it's not sexual abuse. Her father is so possessive of her that he represses her growing and natural interest in boys. In other words, he's so controlling, he's suppressing her sexuality, thusly warping it as much as he's warping her concept of love. As King writes on page 378, there was a concern on his face, but it was a predatory concern, somehow more frightening than comforting. Though he never touches her sexually, there's something there, and it's horrible in its own right. The possibility of abuse is a ticking time bomb, so much so that her mother has to ask Bev if he's touched her. Bev is growing up and it's natural to talk to boys. The thought of sex hasn't crossed her mind, but in the eyes of her father, it's all that she thinks about. His complete fear and control of it causes warped concepts of love and sex within her. And his complete suppression of these ideals lays the foundation for the biggest issue I have, not only with this novel, not only for any Stephen King novel, but for any novel that I can think of. And that's the orgy in the sewers. The ending to the kid's story in the novel is hugely problematic. I don't know what King was thinking when he wrote it. I don't know what the editor was thinking when he let it go to print. I don't know how any rational human being in the art field could justify the gangbang of an 11-year-old girl as the event which saves children's lives. Now, an artist is not limited to popular or unproblematic content. Handled the right way, you can comment on just about anything, but this is not handled the right way. The scene is troubling on a number of levels, the first of which is how it's presented. It is completely earnest. It plays like it's supposed to be a beautiful scene in which a young girl, subjugated under the reign of her father's tyrannical control, takes ownership of her budding sexuality by having sex with her six male friends. In the events of the novel, this empowers the magic that exists between and all around them to save their lives and tips the balance in their favor, allowing them to escape from the tunnels beneath the city. That's the issue. So misguided was King and his editor and his publisher and anyone else that let this go to print. This event is portrayed within the context of the novel as being a powerful and beautiful moment. It is so off base from reality that's even more disturbing. However you try and rationalize it, it's still a scene where a young girl loses her virginity to six men in a sewer. Maybe you could make the argument that she's taking control of her life and she ultimately is the one who saves the day, but I, I cannot see it that way. To me, even though it's her idea and yes, she does save the day, she is still a literal receptacle for the love between them all, a physical object that's used to save the day. It's disgusting. It's pornographic. It's misogynistic. It is gross. I'm not about censorship 
or a proponent of an artist tinkering with previous works, but if King announced that he was releasing a new version of this novel with this scene omitted and the events of the narrative reworked so it never happened, I would not be upset. I would give him a lot of credit for making the right choice. This scene is so disturbing, so wrong, so out of place, um, like I said, so misguided that I, I, if anyone does not like the book because, because of it, I, I can't argue with them. If anyone has, if anyone has never read Stephen King before and only read this and was disgusted with that and they never wanted to read Stephen King again, I'd say, okay, that's fine. You know, I mean, there's really not much you can argue with there. All right. I don't really want to talk about that anymore. I just want to move on to, to Richie. Um, when King introduced us to Richie in chapter three, six phone calls, it made me wonder what the remake has in store for him. Because impressions, it's not an entertainment commodity anymore. Rereading the Richie sections, I think of the mania displayed by Robin Williams during the time period in which King wrote this. How audiences responded to that type of comedy and entertainment. But times have changed, and this is a characterization that doesn't hold up as much as the others. I guess they can make him a shock jock, I suppose, but that's a little bit too aggressive and harsh of an interpretation for someone that's pretty decent and caring. So, with all of that said, Richie, to me, is the scene stealer of this book. Might be our main character, uh, but Richie is very much the heart of the group, and he's one that just crackles when he's on the page. Each of the characters demonstrate different aspects of strength, and Richie is, it's his mouth. He can't help his quick mind and his quick wit. Despite imminent physical danger, he doesn't back down from bullies, whether they be Henry and his crew or Pennywise himself. This smart-ass quality causes Richie to function as the wild card of the bunch, the reader never knowing what he's going to say next, more likely you know, just going to exacerbate a problem. In South Park, Kyle and Stan have been criticized for being too similar. Much in the same way, Ben and Bill are very much the same. You know, Both are plagued by a condition, one's fat, the other one has a stutter, both are genuinely good, their heads solidly screwed onto their shoulders. Thank God for Richie, who continually crashes into the narrative like a wrecking ball. As I stated in a previous episode, despite his court jester appearance, he also functions as the group's number two and Bill's partner in crime. It's Richie who encourages Bill to confront the photo album, and it's the two of them who proactively first go in search of the clown in Nybolt Street. It's an aspect of the ABC movie that failed to capture, and it's one that I'm surprised to rediscover each time I reread the book. The more I reread of the novel, the more I realize how important he was and how much of my resting thoughts were because of the Harry Anderson interpretation from the 1990 TV movie. Richie's significant in this novel, much more so than I ever realized. Not only does he encourage Bill with the photography album to, and join him uh, on Nybolt Street, like I just said, but he's the one that breaks the ice at the reunion. He's the one who toasts to us stepping up as a leader. He's not the leader, but he's still a leader, one they can all trust. One who can manage their emotions. His eyes caught Bill's, King writes, and with a force so great he could barely deal with it, Bill remembered himself and Richie in the middle of Nybolt Street after the thing which might have been a clown or which might have been a werewolf had disappeared, embracing each other and weeping. At that moment, Richie ignites a dormant power, the memories of a best friendship. With it, he toasts to the losers and Bill, who has just been unknowingly flipped on 
and Bill then resumes his leadership position within the group. And that's all because of Richie. And like I said in the last week's episode, Richie really helps save the day. He's the one that goes into its mind when Bill can't handle it and saves the day. Richie's the one that talks back to the clown when the when Pennywise is Paul Bunyan. Uh, yeah, to me, Richie might be the most important character of the of the book. Now I want to talk about Ben. When first meeting Ben, we are introduced to a punctual, routine-driven man that is described as the loneliest man in the world. It's a great introduction to a character who's been hiding in Nebraska his adult life, a safe haven that he's built for himself to get away from the memories of Derry. Child Ben is our gateway into the summer of 1958, and through his perspective, we learn how genuinely kind he is. And aside from this function as the entryway into the novel, Ben doesn't do much. Yeah, his architectural know-how comes in handy, and he's quietly kind and warm, but Ben does not do much. His love triangle doesn't even provide any conflict in the story. While the novel's about the purity of friendship, the simple fact that there's a love triangle allows for conflict. It's a missed opportunity that could have added more tension. It's funny, I, I'm telling you, I've, I've read this book so many times, I just remember Ben being more important. Yeah, he makes the slugs, he builds the dam, like, he, he, he's the mathematical, logistical guy in the group. I get it. That's great. But it doesn't really add up to much. Um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually talk a little bit more about Ben when I conclude um, this episode. So um, I had a thought. I'm going to put a pin in it because I want to talk about Eddie now. From Eddie's introduction, we get a man whose life has been dictated by others, namely his mother, who he replaced with a lookalike Myrna. The association is icky, to say the least, and creates both a sympathy and pity within the reader. The question with Eddie is, is Eddie gay? Is he closeted, unable to come out? During our first meeting, Myrna thinks about shoving him in a closet and blocking the door with her massive, and I'll stress this for the sake of the argument, female body. Soon after, unrelated, Eddie, physically not in the closet, thinks about leaving her. The wife dreams of her husband trapped in the closet while the husband dreams of a life of freedom. To me, that says something. And even when he returns to Derry for his walking tour, he winds up at the Tracker Brothers Truck Depot, two brothers who were lifelong brothers who were rumored to be gay. If he isn't gay, and I'll put money down that he will be in the upcoming film, he's certainly asexual. After all, he was subjected to the tyrannical rule under his mother's thumb during the formative years of his life. His sexual identity, whichever it may be, was squashed by his mother. I believe that Eddie is the bravest character in the novel. He laughs in the face of Henry as his arm is broken. He's the one that saves everyone in the sewer both times and pays for it with his life. Like I said, I remember Ben having a bigger role. And I don't remember Eddie being as brave as he was. I think a lot of the success of this book has to do with the reader's sympathy with Eddie. He's our underdog. He's smaller than the rest under the thumb of his overbearing mother. We want him to succeed, and while he while he dies, I believe that, yeah, in the end, he's successful. Now I want to talk about Mike. 
He's the least flashy member of the group, but I'd say he's the most essential. He's the glue that holds everyone together. The most selfless. He's the one who remained alone in Derry while all the others went on to have extravagant lives. And he didn't even break his high school's football record, although he was the star player. All good luck was used up and dispersed among his friends. He remained steadfast, the watcher on the wall. King uses Mike to carry boatloads of exposition to the reader. Having him be a librarian is a wonderful trick at making that exposition be a part of the character himself. It'd be easy for him to get lost in the role of the wise mentor slash Yoda figure, which adult Mike has morphed into, but it's strong enough of a character to show that the new role doesn't define him. And Child Mike doesn't take a full role until halfway through the book. And while I would love to have seen more of him throughout the novel, his inclusion helps escalate the events and adds new dynamics to the group, which helped a thousand-plus page novel from getting stale. And then there's Stan. Poor Stan. As I've stayed through these episodes, by pushing the suicide to the forefront, King casts a shadow over the past. And meaning is derived in scenes with Stan, whether about when it's when he joked about cutting his wrists with the coat bottle, or how he refused to share his encounter with the clown when the others were able to do so. With the description on page 391, King writes, He was much too neat for a kid who was just barely 11. In his white shirt, neatly tucked into his fresh jeans all the way around, his hair combed, the toes of his high top spotlessly clean, he looked instead like the world's smallest adult. Simply put, Stan is too logical for childhood. If childhood is synonymous with magic, then Stan didn't believe in magic. He was a thinker. He couldn't accept what he couldn't rationalize. His great moment of defiance was when he beat back the clown with the report of the different classifications of birds. He tapped into that magical part, but he didn't realize that that's what he did. This is, of course, acknowledgement that there's a great deal of magic and science. It's the art of discovery and pursuit of wonder. Stan, however, doesn't see it that way. As he stated in 1958, he didn't want to do anything. He just wanted to forget about it. When the losers are threatened by Pennywise and Mike's photo album, the others have to convince him that he saw what he saw. By constantly rejecting the circumstances, he kept shutting out a part of himself as well. By never accepting the shared experience, he wound up committing suicide in 1958. He just didn't die until 1985. And then we have Derry, Maine. By adopting the narrator to tell us the story, at the beginning of the book at least, King consciously or unconsciously alludes to Thornton Wilder's Our Town, a play about life and death in a small town whose story is told by a friendly narrator. The pages of this novel are packed with history. It's incredible how King pulls this off. Sometimes he flat out delivers the history to the reader, and sometimes the characters do the job for him, as in the case of Mike's interludes. But most of the time, it's because of a deft blend of setting and character. And as he had done so before with the location of Salem's Lot, he treats the town as a character who shares top villain with Pennywise himself, as the villain of the story. In fact, you can make the argument that the title has less to do with the shape-shifting clown and more to do with the town itself. He begins to establish the town right away. Alongside the description of Georgie and his yellow slicker, he describes the different streets, the flooding, the tension among the townsfolk, nuggets of history of the last flood and the victim washed out to sea. 
I can't say for sure, but it seems as though hundreds of pages are dedicated to dairy, whether it's through the histories found within the interludes or descriptions of the physical layout scattered throughout the narrative, like pages 184 through 186. But more importantly, the relationship between dairy and it is discussed by the losers on pages 479 to 480. It, if we have to call it something, it might as well be what we used to call it. I've begun to think, you see, that it has been here so long, whatever it really is, that it's become a part of Derry, something as much a part of the town as the standpipe or the canal or Bassey Park or the library. Only it's not a matter of outward geography, you understand. Maybe that was true once, but now it's inside. Somehow it's gotten inside. That's the only way I know to understand all the terrible things that's happened here. The nominally explicable as well as the utterly inexplicable. And now we get to the Stephen Kingisms. And the Stephen Kingisms in this book read like Stephen King's greatest hits. And Stephen Kingisms, for those of you who are new to the podcast, are the tricks and traits and tropes of the author that you see from one book to the next. Um, so one, we have characters undergoing physical transformations, specifically their hair turning white. We last saw this in Carrie when Margaret White's hair turned white. Here we have Henry Bowers, who is so affected by what he sees as body undergoes a metamorphosis. Number two is the greaser villain, seen here as Henry Bowers, but seen before in Carrie, the body. Sometimes they come back in Christine. Number three is the bully, as seen in Carrie, the body, Christine. Greg Stilson was a bully of sorts in the dead zone. A bully made an appearance in Salem's Lot, and in Sometimes They Come Back. Number four, we have references. Not only do we get references, but we get cameos from famous Stephen King characters. First, we see Dick Holleran from The Shining, who appears as part of Mike's town history research. And in my favorite appearance, we get Christine, who pulls up to give Henry a ride when he's escaped from the mental institution. The town that Ben, uh, that adult Ben lives in happens to be the same town as Mother Abigail from The Stand. Shawshank Prison is referenced. Bev references Frank Dodd's murder spree in Castle Rock from the Dead Zone. And very deftly, early on in the story, during part three of chapter three in the first section, when we first meet adult Richie, he throws up when the memories come back. And King writes, sometimes these things come back, sometimes they come back. Which is the title to a short story that he had written in Night Shift, in which a man must confront the literal ghosts of his past, greaser bullies that killed his brother with a switchblade. Number five is the writer. We've seen the writer in Salem's Lot, The Shining, and various short stories here with Bill Denbro. We'll see the writer soon enough in The Dark Half, in Bag of Bones, and others. Number six is racism, to denote a character's low qualities, as seen here with uh, Henry Bowers and his father, Butch. Number seven is multiple aliases for the villain, as we've seen before with Randall Flagg, who uses a number of different names. Same thing here with Pennywise, who you know takes on, who transforms a lot, uh, but also is Pennywise a dancing clown, as well as Mr. Robert Gray, Bob Gray, Mrs. Kirsch. Which goes to number eight, the shape-shifting villain. We've seen this before with the Boogeyman in the uh, short story from Night Shift, 
who function as a prototype for Pennywise. And we will later see uh, the shapeshifter um, with the Crimson King in Insomnia. Number nine is leeches. Patrick Hochstetter's death conjures the famous scene from the body when the boys, after swimming, discover their body covered in leeches. Number 10 is the catchphrase. Stephen King loves his catchphrases. All right, here we have, they all float. Beep, beep, Richie, you bet your fur. And for King himself, uh, early on, he constantly repeats that his characters head out of the blue and into the black. Um, other famous catchphrases are, uh, they're all going to laugh at you, come out and take your medicine, uh, we're going to see it with um, and Dolores Claiborne. I think there's something about dust bunnies. Um, so he loves his, he loves his kingisms, or he loves the, the catchphrase kingism. Number 11 is characters roaring in laughter from the unfunny joke. Now, Richie Tozier is the walking embodiment of this kingism. Number 12 is the obscene and corrupt town. This is most recently seen in the pages of The Talisman with Oatly. Number 13 is the abused wife. Here we have Bev Marsh, but we'll later see the abused wife again in Insomnia and Rose Matter. Number 14 is the death of the writer's brother during the writer's childhood as seen in The Body. Number 15 is the apothesis of... Dot, dot, dot. Here we have Ben recollecting about the school bell being the apotheosis of all bells, while over in The Gunslinger, the Mohane was the apotheosis of all deserts. It's not a word seen often, and works within both tales. As in uh, within the world of the Dark Tower novels, the Gunslinger is the source of the concept of the cowboy figure in our world, and I, as I've mentioned in It... This is the final essay on a number of King themes, including childhood, so it makes sense to have the apothesis of all bells ring in the hallways of the school. Number 16, uh, he thrusts his fist against the post, has been seen before, and I want to say, in the body. Number 17 is the jester figure, seen here as Richie, seen elsewhere as Cuthbert and Eddie Dean in the Dark Tower series. Um... Number 18 is the inclusion of non-fiction texts. Uh, first seen in Carrie, uh, we see King include articles from Derry, uh, Derry News, throughout the story to give the novel a real-world feel, feel. Number 19 is the Evil House. Here it's 29 Nybolt Street. We've seen it in the Marston House, the Overlook, and the Black Hotel. And we'll see it again with the Dutch Hill House in the Wastelands. Uh, number 20 is the sound of air rushing in to fill the place of where something had been, a description that King uses at least twice in this book, as well as in Eyes and the Dragon, the Stand, and the Talisman. Number 21 is singing roses. At one point, King references a universe where roses can sing. This, of course, is an image that sticks with him, as he'll later use it as one of the major images for the Dark Tower series. Number 22, when Bev returns home, she sees a mailbox for Starkweather, which is a nod to Charles Starkweather, the inspiration for the kid in the stand. Number 23 is Dead Rockers performing, hinted here on the Civic Center marquee and in the rotting flesh in the Nightmares and Dreamscape short story, you know they've got a hell of a band. Number 24 is the bully starting to slowly go insane. It's Henry here, later we're going to see us with Junior in Under the Dome. 
Number 25 is The Relentless Abuser. Here it's Tom Rogan. Later we're going to see Norman from Rose Matter and Ed from Insomnia. Number 26 is Forest Animals Running from an Alien Entity. Here it's the vision of its arrival, and we'll see it again in Dreamcatcher. Number 27, uh, just after the vision, Richie says, I don't know about the kingfish over there. He might be referring to Mike, but a capitalized kingfish is referenced again by the Crimson King himself in Insomnia. Pennywise even refers to himself as the kingfish at one point. Number 28, Children in the Town Dump. Again, this was seen in The Body. Number 29, Beans, Beans, the Musical Fruit. This was famously sung in The Gunslinger. Number 30, The Village of Haven. The neighboring town of Derry is the setting for the Tommyknockers. The steeple with the clocks that blow during the destruction of Derry at the conclusion of the novel has a neighbor steeple that also blows sky high in the Tommyknockers. And as you may know, Pennywise makes an appearance in the pages of that book. Number 31, spiders. We've seen spiders before in The Talisman and the Mist, but here we have the ultimate spider. What's interesting is that although Ben kills its children, some of them live on thematically, as we see more spiders and characters of similar, similar qualities as Pennywise, with the Crimson King, Mordred, and the character Dandelo. So, at this time I usually read the quote, what I think is the most important uh, text from the, the, the book, and I have two. Um, so it's kind of a cheat, but I think that it's okay, seeing as how this book is much longer than any of the others that I have reviewed so far, so I think that that's, that's a fair cheat. So the first one is, it's on time, uh, starting on page... 465 and it goes into 466 there is a uh, long quote on time so here in the private restaurant dining room bill felt its presence so fully that it was almost personified but not as an old man in a white robe with a scythe on his shoulders it was the white spot on the map which lay between 1958 and 1985 an area an explorer might have called the great don't know Bill wondered exactly what was there. Beverly Marsh in a short skirt which showed most of her long, coltish legs, a Beverly Marsh in white go-go boots, her hair parted in the middle and ironed. Richie Tozier carrying a sign which said, Stop the war on one side and get ROTC off campus on the other. Ben Hanscom in a yellow hard hat with a flag decal on the front, running a bulldozer under a canvas parasol, his shirt off showing a stomach which protruded less and less over the waistband of his pants. Was this seventh creature black? No relation to either H. Rap Brown or Grandmaster Flash, not this fellow. This fellow wore plain white shirts and fade into the woodwork J.C. Penny slacks, and he sat in a library corral at the University of Maine, writing papers on the origins of footnotes and the possible advantages of ISBN numbers in book cataloging, while the marchers marched outside and Phil Ox sang, Richard Nixon, find yourself another country to be a part of and men died with their stomachs blown out for villages whose name that could not pronounce. He sat there studiously bent over his work. Bill saw him, which lay in a slant of crisp white winter light, his face sober and absorbed, knowing that to be a librarian was to come as close as any human being can to sitting in the peak seat of eternity's engine. Was he the seventh? 
or was it a young man standing before his mirror, looking at the way his forehead was growing, looking at a combful of pulled-out red hairs, looking at a pile of university notebooks on the desk reflected in the mirror, notebooks which held the complete, completed messy first draft of a novel entitled Joanna, which would be published a later year? Some of the above, all of the above, none of the above. It didn't matter, really. The seventh was there. And in that one moment, they all felt it, and perhaps understood best the dreadful power of the thing that had brought them back. It lives, Ben thought, Bill thought, cold inside his clothes. Eye of Newt, tail of dragon, hand of glory, whatever it was, it's here again in Derry, it. And he felt suddenly that it was the seventh, that it and time were somehow interchangeable, and it wore all of their faces, as well as the thousand others with which it had terrified and killed, and the idea that it might be them was somehow the most frightening idea of all. How much of us was left behind here, he thought with sudden rising terror. How much of us has never left the drains and the sewers where it lived and where it fed? Is that why we forgot? Because part of us each never had any future, never grew, never left dairy? Is that why? There was a moment of silence, and then the room exploded with laughter. Bill crossed to them and began to shake hands, and while there was also something horrible in what he now felt, there was also something comforting about it, the sensation of having come home for good. But the one that I think really speaks to the text is on page 769, and that is about friendship. These were his friends, and his mother was wrong. They weren't bad friends. Maybe, he thought, there aren't any such things as good friends or bad friends. Maybe there are just friends, people who stand by you when you're hurt and who help you feel not so lonely. Maybe they're always worth being scared for and hoping for and living for. Maybe worth dying for, too. If that's what has to be. No good friends, no bad friends. Only people you want, need to be with people who build their houses in your heart. Okay, everyone, uh, if you're still here, you've reached the conclusion to the review of this novel. So before I get to the very, very conclusion, I did say uh, earlier that I, I wanted to talk about Ben a little bit. So this is a character that I thought, I just remember him contributing more. So I, I'm going to say that when the movie gets made, if they combined a couple characters I, I would not be upset because I think that the seven characters you could also make the argument that there it's 14 characters because the adults and the children have you know they, they, they have their own stories it's a lot to juggle um, and I I get caught up in the emotion I get caught up in the feeling so I go with it but it's it's a lot and if they were to compress some of these characters together in a movie I wouldn't uh I wouldn't argue. Um, I don't need seven characters. If I had five characters, that would be fine. Uh, but that's that's definitely something that I just wanted to put out there. But yeah, guys, you know, here we are at the end. Um, and I won't reread this novel again. I just I can't justify another reading of a thousand plus page novel when there's just so many novels out there that I've never read. You know, that's the logical reason. Uh, but there's an emotional one as well. Um, for me, each subsequent reread 
becomes more and more bittersweet because it becomes less and less an experience and more and more just like reading a story. Just a story, um, which for me, it's, it's heartbreaking because despite the fact that I've just given three episodes dedicated to the novel, I'm never really going to be able to put into words how I felt reading this book for the first time. You know, it, like I said, it just opened a door into a magic place. Um, I walked through it, and I was one of the losers. I was one of them. I was the eighth member. But now, here that I am at the end, I think that's fitting when you look at it, really. For a novel that's ultimately about being able to say goodbye to your childhood and embrace adulthood, I think that's time that I finally let this novel go. So everyone, thank you for sticking around uh, for this three-part review of the novel. Make sure that you tune in next week as I review the 1990 ABC miniseries starring Tim Curry in one of Stephen King's most iconic adapted roles of all time. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, anyone that has seen the movie and is a fan of the movie, uh, I think that you'll you'll enjoy it. So everyone, thank you so much for this uh, for our trip to to Derry and this particular novel, the one for me that started it all. And if you haven't done so already, uh, feel free to send an email and share your thoughts on the book at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And you can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Tumblr and Facebook and Pinterest. And if you haven't done so, head on over to iTunes, write a review and subscribe because the more subscriptions and reviews that I get, uh, the higher up the, the podcast goes. So... Thank you, everyone, and I'll see you here next week as we check out the miniseries Same King Time, Same King Channel, Stephen King Cast. Against the wind.